गुड मॉर्निंग एवरीबडी आई स्नेग्धा शर्मा आई एम गोइंग टू प्रेजेंट द हिंदू एडिटोरियल डेटेड थर्ड फेब्रवरी टू थाउजेंड ट्वेंटी दिस पॉडकास्ट इज फॉर दो एडिटोरियल इज गिवन ऑन द लास्ट सेगमेंट ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड हैप्पी प्रिपरेशन The first article of the day it's goodbye to fiscal orthodoxy. Budget 2021 is a departure from a key tenet of the Washington consensus. Macroeconomic stability. This article is written by TT Ram Mohan. Enough of fiscal orthodoxy. Spend like there is no tomorrow. That is what the Narendra Modi government's budget for 2020 221 seems to signal with its physical deficit at 9.5% of gdp for financial year 21 and 6.8% in financial year 2022 a mix the change in fiscal stance is part of a selective departure from market orthodoxy that has marketed the government's economic policy in the last few years the government has increased duties on some imports in order to protect and foster domestic industry it has introduced performance linked incentives for designated sectors something that goes counter to ma- market economics the government is however happy to adhere to other elements of market orthodoxy such as privatization and a greater role for fdi to comprehend the shift in fiscal thinking you only need to compare one document in the budget with that of previous years this is a document titled medium term fiscal policy come physical strategy statement the document begins with a table on various fiscal indicators in previous years the document would give the indicators for the past two years as well as the projections for the next 2 years the idea was to show that the economy was moving along a fiscal consol- consolidation path with a physical deficit of 3% of gdp as eventual target in this year's budget the early projections are missing all we have is a commitment in the finance minister's speech to lower the fiscal deficit to 4.5% of gdp by 2025 26 For well over a decade and a half, we have kept up the pretense of attain- attaining the deficit targets set out in the fiscal responsibility and budget management. In this budget, the pre- pretense goes out of the window. The finance minister has promised to introduce an amendment to the FRBM Act to formalize the new targets. Moving away from failed work. The budget does marks an important departure from one of the key tenets of the Washington Consensus, the framework for market-oriented economics which has dominated policy making in most parts of the world. Macroeconomic stability is central to the consensus. Macroeconomic stability means that the government budgets need to be broadly in balance so that borrowing to finance the deficits are kept to the minimum. Austerity became something of mantra. It has been bitterly contested in recent years especially in Europe but austerity won the day until the covid-19 crisis struck The economic survey that preceded the budget laid the groundwork for a departure from a rigid adherence to fiscal cons- consolidation It has a quote from economist Oli Olivier Oliver Blanchard 
If the interest rate paid by the government is less than the growth rate, then the intertemporal budget constraint facing the government no longer binds. The international budget constraint means that any debt outstanding today must be offset by future primary surpluses. Blanchard was saying that this is not true if the interest rate growth differential, the difference between the interest rate and growth rate becomes negative. In the advanced economies, as interest rates have turned negative, Blanchard's conditions has been met. So government there do not have to worry that assets will render public debt unsustainable. Spend more. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, both flag bearers of the Washington Consensus, have been urging a departure from fiscal orthodoxy in the wake of the pandemic. Both these institutions used to be wary of any increase in the public debt to GDP ratio beyond 100%. Today, they are urging the advanced economies to spend more by running up deficits even when the debt to GDP ratio is poised to rise to 125% by the end of 2021. The survey argues that in India, the growth rate is higher than the interest rate most of the time. So the conventional restraints on fiscal policy needs to be questioned. Especially when there is a serious contraction of the sort the Indian economy faced in 2020-2021. It says that in the current situation, expansionary fiscal policy will boost growth and cause debt to GDP ratios to be lower, not higher. Given India's growth potential, we do not have to worry about debt sustainability until 2030. These points are by no means novel. The conditions for debt sustainability are well known. However, the surveillance was not accepted in the past. Indian fiscal policy has adhered to orthodoxy even during a lockdown or downturn such as the one we faced in the years preceding the pandemic. An important consideration was the fear that the rating agencies would downgrade India if total public debt crossed, say, 10-11% of GDP. That is a risk that cannot be wished away unless the rating agency would have decided to tow the IMF World Bank line on physical deficits. Key concern Another concern is that a large fiscal deficit can fuel a rise in inflation. It is more than likely that a change in the fiscal consolidation targets will require a change in the inflation targets of 4% set for the Reserve Bank of India. The budget makes no mention of such a possibility. Perhaps the finance minister did not want to administer too many surprises at one go. A third concern is that with the tax to GDP ratio not rising as expected, the sale of public assets has become crucial to reduction in the physical deficit in the years ahead. This is a high-risk strategy for years now. Revenues from disinvestment have fallen short of targets. The sale of Air India, which was begun, uh, which ha- was begun in 2018, is still dragging on. We need to face up to an important reality. Large-scale privatization is not easily accomplished in India. Selling public assets cheap is politically contentious. There will be allegations of favoring certain industrial houses. Public sector unions are a vital political constituency. Privatization of banks raises concerns about financial stability. Job losses from privatization are bound to evoke a backlash. Privatization means FDI. Moreover, large-scale privatization almost always involves substantial FDI. 
in southeast asia and eastern europe privatization of banks meant a large rise in foreign presence in the domestic economies aatmanirbhar bharat cannot greater uh, can connotes greater self reliance and strong indian companies how does the government reconcile rise in fdi with aatmanirbhar bharat if the nation's political economy came in the way of our meeting the frbm targets it is also likely to pose an obstacle to a large scale privatization and departure from fiscal orthodoxy is welcome but the government needs to think of ways to make it more sustainable tt ram mohan is a professor at iim ahmedabad So the next article of the day is a normal budget for abnormal times contrary to expectation the budget maintains incrementalism and continues with business as usual this article is written by m suresh babu budget 2021 comes in the backdrop of the optimism of economy turning tide from an estimated 7.7% contraction in 2020 to 21 the economic survey project india's real gdp growth to be 11% in 2021 to 22 which is arrived by an implicit assumption of 4.4% inflation and a nominal gdp growth of 15.4% this docu- this double digit growth projection is on a very low base and it is important to highlight the fact that even if these numbers are realized this growth path would entail a real gdp growth of 2.4% over the absolute level of 2019 to 20 this means that the indian economy would take 2 years to reach and surpass surpass pre covid 19 levels this echoes the intensity of the abnormal times for the economy which requires non standard policy responses and which was expectations from budget 2021 those who designed the budget in turn decided to maintain incrementalism and continue business as usual the finance minister's speech eloquently laid out the six pillars on which the vision of the budget rested as expected the health sector was the first pillar with enhanced outlays which have been spread over the next 6 years while this strategy of spending over the medium term represents the so called road map the yearly outlays get subsumed by the big numbers announced the immediate outlays are of significance in the present circumstances when the overall demand in the economy is tepid the construction of the six pillars which was expected to be on the current year's enhanced expenditures seems to be a bit misplaced with very little increase in the overall expenditure of the government the fiscal arithmetic provides evidence of this as to total expenditure for 2020-21 is stated as 34 lakh 50305 crore rupees in the revised estimates with a capital expenditure at 4 lakh 39163 crore rupees the budget estimates for 2021 to 22 states that the total expenditure at 34 lakh 83000 236 crore rupees this means an additional spending of just 32931 crore rupees which is less than even 1% in a year of income contraction for a vast majority of the population no multiplier effects soon however the big bet for growth and employment generation capable capital expenditure increases by 26% but still accounts for only 15% of the total expenditure this increase in capital expenditure which is expected to be channel channelized via the infrastructure push in turn 
one bears two risks at the moment. First, there is a risk of delay in completion, which leads to cost overruns. Second, as the life cycles of these projects is long, an inventory of funding needs to be ready in the pipeline. Thus, the immediate multiplier effects to lift the aggregate demand in the economy might not emanate as quickly as expected. Sector-specific target proposals barring production-linked Incentives for industry are few as agriculture and the micro and small industry segments which shores up demand with their consumption multipliers seem to have been accorded lower priority. There are no radical firm proposals for the agriculture sector with no announcement with regards to bringing urea under the nutrient-based subsidy regime or rationalizing the PDS issue prices of food grains. In fact, the recent growth performance of the sector has led to the finance minister not to have any increase in cash transfers under the Pradhan Mantri Kisan Samman Nidhi scheme that was PM Kisan from the existing 6,000 per year. 6,000 rupees per year. Manufacturing growth, which is expected to be a catalyst in pushing the economy towards a $5 trillion economy goal by 2025, would depend entirely on how private investment picks up. While the textile sector is a focal point to push employment and industrialization, a lack of concrete policies towards export promotion at a time when the exchange rate is appreciating and a peddling with tariffs to increase production is frequent, might undermine the competitiveness of manufacturing exports. The creation of a development finance institution addresses are one of the three issues that uh, infrastructure provisioning faces in the economy. While the financing part can be addressed to some extent by this new uh, new rest to some extent by the new entity, the other two execution risks and regulatory issues are still left wide open. This new institution can be seen as a first step. Uh, towards cleaning up the financial sector as amount set aside for the recapitalization of public sector banks looks short of the requirement. Given the emphasis on the startups and one-person companies, the stress on the financial system in the com- coming years is likely to increase as f- these firms are more prone to the cyclones in the economy. Up an employment left out. The growth push of the budget subsumes the welfare implication, which is the hall- hallmark of the new welfareism model of the present government. Both employment and demand generation are left largely to the vagaries of growth cycles. While extending the social security benefits to gig economy workers is a welcome move, the lack of a concerted plan to tackle urban unemployment might prove costly given the demographic profile and pace of uh, urbanization of the country. The budget sets out some grand plans and does not provide the precise mechanism to achieve those. However, it does attempt to spell out some institutional changes in major areas such as tax administration and provides a push to public sector research and development. The digital push to uh, to census operation might be a big term investment towards publishing vital data about the economy quickly and in time. Resources and spending. Importantly, the budget is candid on the fiscal deficit numbers and sets out a slow fiscal glide path. However, the resource mobilization for spending seems to be banking on uh, disinvestment, privatization and asset monetization. The route for reducing fiscal deficit from 9.5% to 6.8% of the GDP rests on three components. The benefits of stronger denominator because of the better nominal growth 
total revenue might get some boost from the better tax revenue and compared to last year there is a renewed hope for better divestment divestment revenues all of these are hypothetical at the moment the budget reveals two interest in two interesting aspects of the political economy of policy for me formulation first it shows how important it is not to have one nation in one election as all the states that are going for election this year gets enhanced outlays hence states would be starved for this one time bonanza if there is simultaneous election second the reaction of stock market show how important it is not to have disruptive unexpected strikes on the economy the stock market which was expecting some shocks repeated positively and looks relieved from the fear of a dog policy thrust but is this incremental uh, incrementalism enough to lift the economy perhaps it might just fall short So the next article of today is booting out partial democracy in Myanmar the breakup between the NLD and the military was inevitable this article is written by Rajiv Bhatia on february 1st the Myanmar army seized power turning a partial democracy into full fledged military rule yet again this creates a perception of deja vu as one recalls 1962 1988 and 1990 The milestone years when the generals took similar drastic actions to overthrow a democratic government or derail people's expressed preferences. Between March 2016 and January 2021, the National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, shared power with the military. This was a bold experiment to govern as intensely complex nation in Southeast Asia. Myanmar thus became a car driven by two drivers. On Monday, one driver ejected the other to take charge fully, with the implication that will become clearer only. with time emergency or coup to explain the military's action its spokesman uh, pointed out that there was a terrible fraud in the voters list in the parliamentary elections held in november 2020 and the election commission failed to settle the matter claiming that the, this development would obstruct the path to democracy the army declares an emergency transferring all powers to commander in chief main ong hlaing the decision seems questionable on legal and constitutional grounds first electoral issues need to be addressed and resolved by relevant authorities not the military leadership second article 417 of the constitution empowers the president to proclaim emergency the, in consultation with national defense and security council it does not seem that the council met or presidential consent was obtained in fact president venumayanta and the de facto head of the government Ms Suki have been detained therefore the conclusion is inescapable it is coup d'etat staged by the army in a fashion familiar to the people but it is a coup with difference the party wielding half of the power decided to help itself with the other half too regardless of the law or consequences deeper reflection raises a fundamental question what troubled the nld military equation in the past 5 years making it an uneasy relationship which collapsed completely this week the fact that the generals swung into action as before the newly elected parliament was due to hold it its first session shows that the discussion to resolve differences may have continued until the last minute as a fail the breakup becomes inevitable in this context three fault lines may be pinpointed first ideologically the two segments of the political elite have been at war with each other the army had a sense 
sense of entitlement to power on the grounds that it secured independence, defended the country against successions, and ensured stability and development. It views itself as a guardian of the state. NLD leaders Mr. Misuki, the, the protagonist, has always expressed admiration, ad, uh, admiration for the army, uh, especially because it was established and nurtured by her father. But she has been a staunch advocate of democracy, a system in which the army should be completely apolitical. Specifically, the two sides have had modest to serious differences over ethnic reconciliation, constitutional reform, the Rohingya issue, and the China policy. Second, in political terms, the fighters for power, the army has been used to exercising power for long, which yields its immense economic dividends too. Playing second fiddle to democratically elected leader was a difficult role for it. Third, presidential ambitions and the future of senior general Min Ong Hilang's career constitute a relevant issue back in 2016 and even now a well-informed sources uh, he according to well-informed sources he nurtured the dream to be Myanmar's uh, president Miss Suki was opposed to it besides she was perhaps unwilling even to extend his tenure he is due to retire from army he's due to retire from the army in July presumably the coup guarantees an indefinite extension the military leadership understands the people's psyche well the divide between the Burmans, the majority groups, the ethnic minorities remains wide. The latter are generally opposed to a strong central government. As to the former, they are no doubt supportive of Mother Sue, but only up to a point. They are largely Buddhist and peace-loving. Hence, they might accept the grabbing of a half-loaf of power from elected representative by the army. In areas where palpable discontent arises, the army possesses enough tools to manage situations, and Burmese jails are not short of spaces. Externally calls for an early restoration of democracies were issued predictably. This is unlikely to impress the commander-in-chief. The diminished international halo of Ms. Suki is an open secret. Besides, he banks on the support of only one constituency, his fellow ranking generals. I don't know why they are using his for Ms. Suki. Policy of non-interference. Many worry how India, the world's largest democracy, should cope with the forcibly overthrow of democracy in a neighboring country. This is unnecessary. Our mandarins know how to navigate the tricky path. Institutional memories and experiences are helpful. Whenever democracy suffers, India feels concerned, even anguished. But the government is committed to the policy of non-interference in another state's internal affairs. It also guided by the international uh, by the interest. Therefore, in managing relations with Myanmar, India will astutely balance its principal values and interests and geopolitical realities. The visit to Myanmar last October by Foreign Secretary Harsh Vardhan Shingla and Chief of Army Staff M.M. Narvani was an unmistakable uh, sign that New Delhi fully understood when parley in Naipidav. Those takeaways will be invaluable now.